Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. As a way of a brief introduction, I just want to say, I know the midterm elections have passed, and part of me didn't want to air this conversation before or around them because I personally am so exhausted with political coverage, especially around elections. And this conversation is really not about the midterms. It's about a much larger, longer trend of politicians using religious rhetoric in American political history and in the present. And I think that that is just as relevant now in between election cycles as it is near election cycles. So I hope that the topic will not keep you from listening because you think it's not appropriate or timely. It's as timely as it was three months ago, four weeks ago, whatever. So enjoy my chat with Brian. Reverend Dr. Brian Kaler, thank you for joining me. For, For the people in low church land, that means you have a doctorate of ministry in a mainline denomination. Is that right? That's actually not correct in this case. So oh. my doctorate is actually a PhD okay. in political communication. Oh. And then I also have the ministry degree, you know, lower level. Yeah. So you're double trustworthy. Is that what we're to take away from <laughs> I don't that? Know about that? You know, I, I left the world of seminary and instead went to graduate school to, to move on the track there. Right. What drew you away from the seminary world toward graduate school and then eventually toward focusing on the use of religious rhetoric by American politicians. How did you end up there? Yeah, I had a a number of things that led me in that direction. And I mean, a big part of it was kind of seeing where I wanted to be vocationally. Not having been to seminary, but having, I don't know, 25 friends who have kind of across the spectrum. Is that the level of academic rigor and engagement varies profoundly seminary to seminary? Is that your sense as well? Yeah, that's right. I think there's some are much more focused on kind of the practical side of ministry, which, you know, which for a lot lot of ministers, exactly. That's what they need because that's what they're going to be dealing with, you know, day to day. That just wasn't what I was interested in. And I was realizing that. What's the book called, by the way? presidential campaign rhetoric in an age of confessional politics. And confessional politics is kind of the key frame, key phrase. So you say in the book that this really gets started 
with Jimmy Carter, as I understand it, the first kind of like openly evangelical presidential candidate in American history, like using that term. But we don't think of it that way necessarily because he was a Democrat and he's been sort of vilified. Those of us who were raised listening to our parents' right-wing talk radio know that Jimmy Carter is like this bugaboo of the left. So it's kind of interesting to think that, oh, he's the first guy who got this religious rhetoric going. Carter was the first evangelical president in kind of modern politics. He wasn't quite first, but what he did is he's the start of what I call an evangelical era of politics. Hmm. And so what Carter is the 39th president. So in the first 38 presidents, only four were evangelicals. But when I was initially writing that Carter through Obama, and so instead of four out of 38, you now had four out of five would yeah. be considered evangelical. And the only exception was the George H.W. Bush, the elder Bush. Obama didn't use the term and he shied away from it. And I, I had this in the book because of the politics. Right. But he is clearly evangelical in his rhetoric, in his theology, and the way he talks. The split between theologically evangelical white and black Americans, that the the racial difference makes all the difference politically and the theology actually has no effect because if you're black, you voted for Hillary if you're evangelical. And if you're white, you voted for Trump if you're evangelical. I mean, it's like 80-20 white and 90-10 black. You know, I think since then we have even more people that are, you know, wrestling with, do I use the evangelical term? But we already had black evangelicals by that point were recognizing that this was becoming a political marker you know, in some ways fairly, in some ways, you know, our media has played into that. So you, you talk about, you know, black evangelicals and how they vote. And technically, we don't have a good number for that because the exit pollsters don't even ask. They only ask whites voters if you are evangelical. Huh. So like you can do this in like other faith traditions. Like we can look at the exit poll data and see how did white Catholics vote versus all Catholics. And so you can see a difference. So like while Trump won white Catholics, he lost all Catholics right. overall. So we get that what the impact of what's happening with Hispanic and you know, black and, and Asian Catholics and so forth. But they don't do that with evangelicals. They only report white evangelicals as if evangelicals of color don't even exist. And that is, you know, one, then what they end up doing then is that that creates an even more conservative political vision of evangelicalism than is actually true. Oh, and it has become kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy that evangelicals are becoming more conservative, partisan, Republican, because those are the only evangelicals we counted and talked about. Yeah, I'm referencing LifeWay research data from October of 2016, mm -hmm. which does not make a right. ton of New York Times headlines. And they were basing it on their definition of evangelical, which was a – They have a theological definition. The exit pollsters, it's all about self-identified. Right. They right. ask you, do you do you call yourself an evangelical? Yeah. So they're not really apples to apples. And also, you know, talking about there were four presidents before Carter who were evangelical – that's also not apples to apples anymore, right? In terms of the way that we think of that term, they would have met, you know, the Bebbington quadrilateral, the sort of old school definition of what constitutes an evangelical. But like, there are questions today now in the 2020s of like, that's just not really what the word means anymore, right? Now it's this like sociopolitical identity marker. Can you talk a little bit about how has our understanding or our usage of the term evangelical in the political sphere changed over the last hundred years or so? There's been a couple of significant shifts. I mean, so if we go back to, you know, the, the turn of the previous century, we actually have an evangelical, evangelical race. You got McKinley versus Bryan, William Jennings Bryan. And so you have both Republican and Democrat, but you've also got these, you know, this very progressive ideas that are coming out of evangelicalism, you know, the labor laws and a lot of these things that today we don't associate with evangelicalism. Right. right? And so there, there's a shift that happens, particularly post-World War II, and it, there's more of a kind of a mainstreaming of evangelicalism. I honestly think one of the most significant things that happens is that it becomes the largest faith tradition in the United States. And that happens in the 60s, essentially. So for for all of American history, mainline Protestants had been the largest religious group. And in the 60s, evangelicals overtake that as kind of a one you know, data set. Southern Baptist Convention, so evangelical, overtakes the United Methodist 
mainline Protestant as the single largest Protestant denomination in the United States. That also happens in the 60s. And so that has changed American society, but it also changes then evangelicals' sense of their standing in society, right? And so I think that that starts to, you know, more establishment politics. They start getting more involved with structures. Race is also an issue. So as the civil rights movement is happening in the 50s and 60s, a lot of white evangelicals, because they're particularly strong in the South, are reacting to that and then thus reacting to the Democratic Party's embrace of the civil rights movement. So talk to me a little bit about the early 70s and the Jesus movement, because that's where I often tend to focus. I think less about you know, the growth of the Southern Baptist Convention because of my own upbringing in a kind of a young life tinged California evangelical setting. Most of those adults trace their sort of faith lineage back to the early 70s and the Jesus movement. And so I always think of that as turning into this mass movement of boomers, essentially, that as young people then their sort of plausibility structure for their view of the world becomes quite firm because there are just tens of millions of them that are all kind of essentially, maybe not quite a monoculture, but, you know, a very large, fairly set subculture, fairly consistent with each other. Yeah. And there's been actually some research kind of tracking the impact of the Jesus movement of essentially moving many people out of mainline churches. And then when the dust all settles, they find themselves in a evangelical church. Right. Right. And so that really does help change and speed up this shift in American religious life. And with that comes then also just different religious expressions. So we see this in evangelicalism versus mainline Protestants. The Jesus movement fits with that evangelical idea of evangelistic, of being much more outspoken about your faith or your personal faith, wearing your faith on your sleeves, if you will. Right. And so that changes the way people in our country talk about religion and expect others to talk about religion. Right. Yeah. So if you're a buttoned up Methodist to play, you know, cliche here, you don't necessarily want your political candidates talking like your pastor talks. That's not part of your culture. But once you are a Rick Warren Hawaiian shirt and sandals folk evangelical guy. Well, now everyone around you talks about their faith more openly. It's kind of the way that you tell whether or not you can trust someone is if like if everyone starts talking about their faith in their daily life, Mm -hmm. then that becomes the kind of stuff that is a marker to you of whether they're in your tribe or not. And so now if one politician talks like you. I mean, this is the whole Trump thing, right? He talks like us. He doesn't live like us, but at least he talks like us. And then the other politician doesn't. Now, the one that talks like you, because it's not like politicians, I mean, they do get in smoke-filled rooms and they make decisions, but they the decisions they make are based on how voters are reacting to them. That's who they're trying to curry favor with. So ultimately, it starts with us, the voters, right, which is we reward this religious political rhetoric. And and sounds like this is one of the mechanisms that you've identified for how that becomes is that people start talking more about their faith more openly. Yeah. So it's not that we suddenly in 76 and the 80s and 90s and on to now became a more religious society than we were, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s and you know, before that. It's that we became a different type of religious society. And yeah. the way that you prove that you're religious is by talking about it in the evangelical tradition. That is, oh my gosh, there's so <laughs> there's so much there because you know, anybody who starts reading you know, the gospels, for instance, in that setting, they, they might start thinking like, are we kind of doing the Pharisees on the street corner? You know, like, isn't this a little in contrast with the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about this very quiet sort of not drawing attention to yourself. And to be clear, a lot of evangelical charitable work, a lot of their giving, a lot of working out of their faith is very much under the radar. And I've talked to sociologists of religion who talk about this as a problem. It's actually hard to measure what evangelicals are doing because they are so often doing it and there's no record of it as opposed to what Catholic charities or is doing or, you know, whatever. So I, I don't mean that as a pure dig on that population, but that is interesting. Say a little bit more about this. Like in evangelicalism, the way you show it is through your language. Like what, say more. 
even if you just think about the way that you join a church, you know, it's an evangelical tradition, you're going to more often than not, you know, do that moment where you, there's the altar call, the pastor invites everyone to come down and you walk the aisle, you stand at the front of the church, you make the public declaration that, you know, I have accepted Jesus and I'm ready to get baptized and join this church. And then you are coached, you're encouraged to go out and evangelize, to tell others And while evangelicals are engaged in disaster relief and a lot of works, the focus is on how do we lead people to Jesus to make that commitment as opposed to, you know, maybe more of a quietism, you know, we're going to do the good works and show people the love of Jesus because that's what we're called to do as Christians. And there's always then in evangelical circles that push towards how do we make sure that we end with the altar call, that we have the, the evangelistic call and invite people to make this declaration themselves. The language that I came up with when I was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ was soul saved is the only real dollar in the bank. Like ultimately the final currency all said and done is how many people end up at the good place versus the bad place. Mm -hmm. Those are infinite stakes. And so everything else in theory ought to lead to that. And that's why Campus Crusade, which apparently they continue to do this. They do these like fake, they pretend to do surveys And they tell students that they're conducting surveys to be able to get into a conversation about Jesus. There's no, I mean, they're not doing anything with the data. It's quite deceptive. But in their mind, what's a little deception about whether or not we're using survey data? We are giving them the opportunity to go to heaven instead of hell, right? And so that's how I've understood it. That's the economy of it, if you will. Do you agree? Yeah. And then you also, so then, you know, how that starts to translate politically, not only do we expect the candidates to talk about it, but we want them to mention their conversion moment, right? Yes. And so then that, that can, you know, we had all this talk about Trump. He's a baby Christian, James Dobson assured us. There have been multiple people who have claimed that they, they prayed the prayer with Jesus, with, with Trump and he accepted Jesus. He's a Christian now, right? And so we don't have to look at his lifestyle. We don't have to look at his behavior. We don't have to look at anything that suggests that he's actually living like Jesus taught. All we have to be assured is he said this prayer. Right? He's good. So now we can all trust him. He's okay. And so there, there's definitely, it's just this different way of thinking about Christianity and what it means to be a Christian. And so as that becomes whatever, you know, faith tradition is the largest in our society, when that shifts, it will have an impact in a lot of areas, including how we view the leaders of our nations. And that's what we've seen over the last four decades now. I'm trying to think of a non-conservative, non-religious example of the way that we, if when a certain perspective reaches critical mass, we want public messaging to match it. I I think about like maybe businesses putting up Black Lives Matter signs or rainbow Mm -hmm. flags in, you know, liberal urban areas. It's like, yo, we've gotten to the point where this is what we agree on. And when you do that, you are saying something to your potential clients. You are signaling a, a loyalty, also probably in most cases anyway, I would assume an ideological agreement, you know, a commitment to certain values or whatever. And the way you do that as a business is a sign in the window. The way you do it as a politician is the rhetoric that you use in your speeches. And to me, that's one of the things we, I think we clearly see. And I think it's really important to kind of to note that what I'm talking about here is how candidates talk about religion, which doesn't mean that they're actually religious. Oh, right. I make the assertion in the book that the candidates in 76 who talks about the Bible, who talks about God, who talks about their faith, the most in the general election wins every time. But that is not to say that the most religious candidate wins. And so that we see someone like, you know, an actor like Ronald Reagan, who was able to pick up the script and turn it on Jimmy Carter in 1980, or we can even go to like 2004, where you have George W. Bush Uh, versus John Kerry. I mean, and Kerry, he's this Northeastern Catholic, right? I mean, this is like, he's like doubly uh, against being too open about his faith, but he's deeply (laughs) devout, right? Like he attends church. He, you know, had even considered a religious vocation younger in his life. Like he's a deeply religious person, but that's not the perception that people had in that race is that the candidate who was going to church the most frequently was actually talking about religion less frequently. Let me ask you this. I don't interview politicians. Even when I was doing depolarize, which was about politics, I didn't interview any politicians. And the reason that I choose not to do that 
is I have a sense that like, I have no fucking idea what you really think. And, and as long as future office remains available to someone in my mind, having them on an interview show where I seek to understand true things about the world is worthless. Unless the interview show is about the political rhetoric of candidacy or something, then I might learn something about that, but I don't know what they think. They're not going to tell me if they have good message discipline. I won't learn anything that I can't find on their website. When you're doing this kind of historical political work or this rhetoric, you know, whatever, how do you know, like you say, John Kerry's devout. So he went to church more often. I mean, is attendance logged? Like, like what sort of data do you have to work with that is not a part of the spin machine? Let me let's look at the Carter Reagan example, because I think that one is perhaps before Trump is the most, yeah. it's the clearest issue that we have. And I would say, you know, one of the odd things about Jimmy Carter in, in all of the stories is I think that he was doing less of the pandering and doing a little bit more of just who he was. And it's just kind of this random moment in American politics Jimmy Carter probably could not have won in like any other election cycle. He's he just, you know, he fit this moment that was happening. We had a lot of, you know, issues and distrust in American society, cynicism because of the Vietnam War, Richard Nixon's you know, resignation. Right. And into that moment comes a, you know, smiling peanut farmer Sunday school teacher. Right. right. And, and in fact, early in some of his campaign for president. Some of his advisors and campaign staffers were trying to get him to talk about Jesus less because they were they thought it was going to hurt him. You know, they weren't necessarily wrong. They were just a few years behind on understanding that, because, in fact, just four years earlier, George McGovern, as the 72 Democratic nominee, he had actually been a Methodist minister for a, a couple of years early in his life. And he never talked about it and even tried to make sure that he could keep the press from finding photos of himself in the pulpit from that time period Whoa. because he thought it would hurt him. He has a liability. But things really radically changed in the next four years with Nixon and Vietnam and a lot of other things happening in our culture. And so Carter just kind of like shows up talking about who he is and it resonated in a really random moment in American politics. But then anytime a candidate wins, Anyone who wants to be president, which is like half the Senate, they all look at like, what did that person do that won? Well, exactly. That's what we've seen after Trump on the right. A non-religious example, when Obama won, every candidate said, well, I've got to get on this thing called Facebook, right? I mean, like, I I have to do that now. There's actually mobilizing that can happen. Because before that, Hillary Clinton and a lot of the other politicians were were mocking Obama. Like, he thinks Facebook's going to win, right? You know, and it did win. Like, he knew what he was doing. He had found this new medium that worked for this new moment in politics. And so everybody copies that. So that's what we see happening after Carter. Reagan shows up. And it's like he's had a, you know, religious, you know, conversion moment, but he understands the political moment. Whereas Carter actually, as president, seems to recognize that he is now leading a pluralistic nation. He actually tones down his sectarian rhetoric as president and into his reelection campaign because he seems to like seriously accepted the mantle of I now represent all of the American people. And so while he's toning it down and having many more, and we see this in his presidential rhetoric, he talks about like, my job is to represent all the American people and the pluralistic society. Like he talks about that. So he seems to have like recognized that. And Reagan, on the other hand, is like, hey, this is how he won. I'm going to do it. And so then once you have both a Democrat and a Republican use religious rhetoric, this confessional style of politics to win, I mean, it's set then at that point. At that point, everybody's figuring out how do we do it? It sounds like Biden, by the way, he wants so badly and I respect him for it. I wish that it worked. He wants to represent all of America and he just he doesn't. I mean, he might technically legally represent all of America, but sort of culturally, you know, 45 plus percent of the country has sort of pre decided that he will not represent them no matter what he says or does. And then 10 percent are persuadable and the other. 45% 45% will vote for him even if we don't like him. It's quaint. And and the fact that like you can point back to Jimmy Carter is kind of that's like the perfect way of saying how quaint some of that stuff is coming from Biden. So you've analyzed this rhetoric, this religious political rhetoric over 
I guess at least the last 50 years. And you have kind of four, four descriptors of it. It's testimonial, it's partisan, it's sectarian, and it's liturgical. Let's talk a little bit about each of those. So how is it testimonial? Is this kind of what we'd think you're telling your conversion story, your faith experience? The rhetoric that we now see from Candace is this expectation to talk about your own personal religion, your own personal you know, background religiously, your conversion experience. Particularly, we see a lot more of that type of rhetoric. And so that's what I mean by that, that, that testimonial side. How soon do you think on the left that candidates will start to be punished for talking about their faith? Is that coming? Is that just not ever going to be true in America? Will it be a candidate talks about their spirituality and the way that they commune with God and nature. I mean, where do you see that going? I'm curious. As our culture continues to shift, like there will, there will be a moment, I think when the cultural shifts again, where we've been in this evangelical society, this evangelical political moment now, but you know, that doesn't also demographically doesn't seem to be you know locked in, but thus far it clearly hasn't happened. I mean, Biden is probably the, the president who goes to church the most regularly since Carter. Right. I mean, talk about that quaintness or that going back to Carter. Right. Yeah. And he was very outspoken about his personal faith during the presidential campaign. His convention, DNC, was, I mean, was probably the most value driven national convention that I, I've ever seen. It was particularly focused on the value of empathy. Right. But you know, for him, that came out of his religious faith. And what we're seeing so far is that the Democrats that don't talk about their religion are the ones that are actually losing. So like Hillary Clinton in, in 2008, when she's in the primaries against Obama, she's talking all the time about her Methodist faith and she's quoting John Wesley and she's, you know, she's talking a lot about religion and she tones it way down in 2016. She doesn't talk about her faith nearly as much. And, you know, she ends up losing in this whole time period that we're talking about from 76 on the least devout, the most secular nominee that we have is Michael Dukakis in 1988. And so, you know, it, it was an experiment that didn't work. Now, obviously things have changed a lot since 1988, but the last time the Democrats nominated a, a fairly secular candidate, at least openly, admittedly secular candidate, it did not work well. So I think we're going to have that moment, but I don't know that we're there yet. It might be more like in Democratic primaries. You know, one of the things I do is I watch, you know, where are candidates showing up on Sunday morning? Who's speaking from the pulpit during church? And while, yes, I can, you know, point you to a number of Republican politicians who are frequently campaigning in Sunday worship, Democrats are doing it too. Hmm. They're showing up on Sunday morning, talking about their faith and trying to get, you know, religious voters to accept them. So I don't think we've reached anywhere near that, you know, tipping point. So the second thing you say is that this rhetoric is partisan. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it, it really is about three different things. I mean, one of this is that they will use religious rhetoric to defend their own partisan positions, you know, policies, this idea almost, this, this inference that our side has the righteous politics, that God is on our side, right? right? So yeah. then, of course, the inverse of that is attack the other side. Like they're, yeah. we're seeing this a lot, particularly right now uh, with Republicans. There seems to be a growth in the, the demonic rhetoric. I've written about this at Word and Way. We have a, a, a publicwitness.wordandway.org where we particularly focus on this intersection of religion and politics. And so we wrote a piece a, a month or so ago about this rise of demonic and satanic rhetoric among Republicans and casting Democrats, not just as, you know, misguided or even ignorant or just, you know, wrong people on the other side, you know, the way yeah. we used to think about politics, but that they're demonic. And that changes the way you then act towards those individuals because you don't compromise yep. with the devil. You know, you try to kill the devil. Yeah. And so we have the attacks. And then the, the other part of, of, of partisan is also in the way that election victories are framed, right? So we're going to win with God's help. And then even and when we did win, God brought us this victory. And Christian, I'm, I was writing this pre-Trump, and I think that that rhetoric got us to a very dangerous place, as we saw with January 6th, because yeah. when you start framing your election as God's will, and it will prove that God, you know, God's going to give us this victory, and then something goes wrong, right? Well, then, you know, wait a minute, God promised us, we were saying, and we had a lot of people prophesying, right? That, you know, Trump's going to win re-election. God's already got a plan. And so that can be rhetoric that can lead us to a pretty dangerous place. 
Oh my gosh, Brian, <laughs> that stuff. It's so funny. I did not grow up in that world at all. The sort of Pentecostal prophecy. I have no history with that. And so I have no personal connection to it, but it's almost like that stuff makes me question my faith more than anything else. When I see sort of the flagrant psychological convenience of certain ways of talking about faith and about God, that's when I go, oh, am I, am I just doing that? You know, like, am I just doing a like less overtly stupid version of that? That's like a little more nuanced and I can like, I can better easily dupe myself because it's not as blatantly ridiculous as this. And I've also interviewed people who have been really caught up in that stuff and some of the kind of prophecies about Trump and end times and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's kind of never endingly interesting to me, like a, like a car accident is, I don't know. Do you, do you have any response to that little confessional testimonial bit of mine here? I mean, I, I sometimes joke that I have to like go take a shower, detox, you know, and it's it's and it's usually not the, the politicians talking about religion. It's the quote unquote preachers and prophets that are talking about politics like those are the that's the stuff that, you know, and and I, I think, you know, when people decry the secularization of society, you know, why aren't millennials going, you know, Gen Z, why aren't they going to church and all kinds of stuff and it's like. I mean, I can give you some good reasons. <laughs> like, let, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a millennial. I can let me point to some of the reasons. I still go yeah. to church, but I understand the temptation to just be yeah. like, you guys are nuts. Like this whole thing, you know, pox on your whole house. Like, I definitely feel that, you know. It also smacks of like the religious wars in European history, like after the Reformation, you know, that God is on our side stuff. I, I do. My sense is that that stuff will all just get worse until some number of people die. I mean, I, I'm not really sure. I, maybe that's too dark of a view, but all this like, <laughs> you know, upping the demonic yeah. rhetoric, it's all just like yeah. you could script it out. It's like, if you go this direction, if you go down this path, the only, you know, eventually someone either, either candidates will start losing that do that. That doesn't seem likely to happen anytime soon. They're, at least not in the primaries and stuff, right? In the, they might. So maybe they'll lose in the generals, and then, okay, the, the party will sort of figure out, all right, we got to tone this down. The other way it changes is that they keep winning, but then a bunch of people die through some sort of senseless violence. And then maybe that starts to change the voters' perspective. Maybe there's some big national tragedy. God, I hope not. But, you know, I, I mean, do you see things any rosier than I do in, in terms of that? I would I would love to hear if you do. Yeah. Well, when you said people die, I thought you meant just this demographic change. So that's no, the, that, no. I mean, that, like, <laughs> well, that too. Yeah, yeah. That's the long term slow solution is, you know, the changeover that we're happening. We're having every day, every year. You know, you do that for another decade, 15, 20 years. And we're going to be in a place where our religious and political environment is significantly different. Sure. But how much can happen in the next 10 to 15 years? Right. Right. That's the thing. Can we make it that far? I mean, right. you know, we came close to not making it that far in on January 6th. And so, like, if we can get to the next, you know, presidential election, maybe two, then it feels like we're entering a safer space. But that's a big, you know, if. You say that this rhetoric is partisan, but also sectarian. Uh, I think a lot of us might consider those to be synonyms. What do you mean? What's the difference between between those? I'm using sectarian in the truly religious sense. And so this is mm. to say that the, it is not only taking sides politically, but the rhetoric that candidates are using that's working is taking sides religiously. Mm. And so that gets us beyond kind of the generic. Some people talk about civil religion, you know, in the middle of the last century, unifying, you know, generic God. And so that when I talk about sectarian rhetoric, we're talking about they're taking sides and saying, you know, about theological statements. So, you know, some candidates, you know, start talking about like deep theology. And then also with the sectarian, I also have what I what I talk about, the almost evangelistic and, you know, even using campaign rallies to suggest that people should be following Jesus and, you know, it needs to be wow. going to church and you need to be praying, right? Using their bully pulpit as politicians and even presidents to encourage people to get involved and live, you know, more religious, more Christian lives. And so, yeah, that's the, so taking sides politically and taking sides religiously. So as I understand it, the evangelical church has been 
bleeding young people, but it has not been bleeding people net because it's been adding a bunch of older people through basically the Trump years. And my understanding through the work of Ryan Burge, who I had on the show, but also David French's writing on this issue is that basically with the Trump phenomenon, the merging of Republican political life and the the sort of momentary increase in, in social power of white evangelicalism, it's now like much easier to invite your friends to church if you're a white evangelical, as long as they're into Trump. Then it's like a, a simple bridge to getting them in the door, and it's less of an ask to sort of for people to maybe return to church who'd left for a while or people who've been curious. And so the overall numbers, it's not declining much because you're getting this kind of consolidation on the right in in white evangelical spaces. What's your take on that phenomenon? Ryan Burge is is, is excellent on this and has done a lot of great data on this. And I think, I think the one caveat I would say on there is that I think that primarily the rise is happening just in the identification of evangelicalism mm-hmm. and not necessarily in church attendance. Right. And so, you know, and so the, you know, the 2016 to 2020 evangelical numbers stay pretty even as far as people who call themselves evangelical, but there is that changeover. So you have people who rejected Trump politically and saw evangelicalism being used in, you know, as a Trumpian movement. So they might still be going to church. But they quit calling themselves evangelical. And I'll be honest, I'm one of those. Right. So, right. you know, I, I I wrote shortly after the 2016 election result that I, I, I didn't think I could use the term evangelical anymore, that, you know, I'm, I've always been a white evangelical Christian. And when 81 percent vote for Trump, the only one of those identifiers that I felt like I could change was evangelical. So, you know, <laughs> and so I was going to quit using yeah. that one, you know, but then but then, and then the flip side of that has been has people who really don't go to church. And who in 2016 did not call themselves evangelical by 2020 were calling themselves evangelical. And so it helps some churches. I mean, there are some churches that I think particularly as they were, you know, fighting COVID health restrictions and meeting and defiance. Right. Yeah. You know, Greg Locke in Tennessee is an example. Yeah. were able to grow their church. But most white evangelical churches are in decline, even as more people because of the Trumpian politics are embracing the term evangelical. But we're getting an evangelical term that is increasingly becoming a political identifier of no theological significance. Right. Speaking of attendance and church life, let's take a little break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how this rhetoric is liturgical. Members of the Patreon campaign get ad-free extended cuts of these main feed episodes, as well as two exclusive episodes per month that are not on the main feed. They also have access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only and is a wonderful little online community. So if you're interested in supporting the work that I'm doing financially, you can head to patreon.com slash Dan That link is in the show notes. It's five bucks a month. And you get that excellent content. Thanks for considering. Back to my conversation with Brian. All right. So the fourth of four features of this rhetoric you describe in the book is it's liturgical. What do you mean by liturgical? So a a little bit of that is just the kind of explaining theology or sometimes presidents presidential candidates will talk about prayer and like this is how prayer works and this is why we pray but then particularly the the, the part that, that had me labeled liturgical was when they almost take on this role of being a worship leader hmm. you know and obama would do this this is something that, you know again across the, the political spectrum he would start some events you know all glory to god you know like that'd be the, his opening words as he's starting a you know a campaign speech wow. almost like he was showing up at church and starting a sermon you know type thing yeah and so you know leading people in worshipful moments but while running a, a presidential campaign are you familiar with the reawaken america tour it's michael flynn roger stone yes i've heard of it maybe but describe it for our listeners yeah so they've been going around the country about once a month they hold a couple of day event and basically <laughs> 
I mean, it, it, it sounds crazy and fringe until you realize that there are like significant people showing up at this. I mean, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump have been speaking at these events. There have been Republican politicians running for various races that have been coming. And Michael Flynn, you know, you know, Roger Stone and a number of preachers. We've already mentioned Greg Locke. Other preachers have been you know, showing up at these events. And it's basically like two days of this throw in. You know, all the election conspiracies that you've ever heard of and more. I have learned a number of election conspiracies I was not aware of until watching the live stream of these events. Uh, a number of anti-vaccine conspiracies and rhetoric. Yeah. And I don't just mean anti-COVID vaccine. They've gone, I mean, they go, COVID is a hoax, but then they've also got their full anti-vaxxer. And so all vaccines now are, are under attack. You know, heavy doses of Christian nationalism and that, you know, you're not really an American if you're not a Christian. And so you wrap together all of these crazy election conspiracies and anti-vax rhetoric and, you know, the Christian nationalism. And you get some like really insane moments. And then they always have a baptism service, right? Mm. Like they, they like lay out a whole day of all these crazy conspiracies and they give an altar call to say, hey, come get baptized. They're not a church. Right. But yeah. they're baptizing people into their religious movement. And so this this use of a, a you know sacred Christian ritual to bring people into their own movement is it's pretty crazy. But, you know, even like, you know, sometimes it can be subtle stuff. Darren Bailey, he's the Republican nominee for governor in Illinois. The door to his campaign bus says Ephesians six. And I forget the exact verses, but it's, it's the armor of God passage. Right. And so, like, that's the, you know, anybody goes in and out of the, you know, in, in the campaign bus that he's driving around Illinois in, like, that's the frame. He's framing this is what my campaign is. Doug Mastriano, we've already talked about him in Pennsylvania. His campaign buttons or in signs that you put in your yard have a little John 836 down there. Walk is his, his slogan is walk is free people. And so he's taking the verse about if the sun has set you free, you are free indeed. And so, but it's a little bit of a play on the word freedom, I guess, but he's saying that they are, you know, walk us free. And so he's, he has baptized, if you will, his entire campaign as this fulfillment of Jesus's salvation, you know, freedom for us. And so these are all things that I would put as, you know, liturgical moments as there are trying to lead us into a moment of worship, though, I would say perhaps not true worship. I'm looking around my desk for things that I might plunge into my ears <laughs> to, like i mean thank you for the examples but like that's how ups- i don't want to hear this shit anymore like and i am not not from you of course i mean i don't want it to be happening right you know it's like it is such a such a rank and clear bastardization of the faith that has meant so much to me in my life and millions of people billions of people actually worldwide just to understand sort of the the form of what you mean by liturgical i mean could we also characterize like martin luther king jr's speeches during the civil rights movement as liturgical you know technically in that same way obviously uh something i am very fond of and feel very good about as opposed to this like i don't know this kind of mini civil war in the making that's going on with michael flynn and others yeah. And, you know, I, I'll make a really important distinction here. And that is that King was doing so as a preacher, but, you know, as an activist. Right. right? right. So he wasn't president or he wasn't right. trying to gain votes to be president. And to me, that's that's the really important distinction here. Yeah. Yeah. We have the right to bring our faith into the public square. But and this is one of the things I think that Carter did learn as president that I don't think most of our presidents have appreciated that as president, you are not there to enact your religion. You are mm-hmm. there to represent, to serve all of the American people. And so that that would be different. Let me push back on behalf of a certain kind of American Christian on that, not on behalf of myself. I agree with you. But someone who's really steeped, let's say, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, and sort of the stories of judges and kings and and all these different leaders of Israel and you know first and second Samuel like there's a real sense in that text that and I know that it's different because in that text Israel is chosen specifically by God to be their covenant people but of course Christian nationalism ends up right. being able to make the same claim about America so that's how they get around it and there's a sense of like 
No, Brian, actually, a leader of a nation is accountable to God for leading that nation toward God's principles, and otherwise God destroys those nations. There's like a very palpable fear sort of assumed in these in these rubrics, right? So how would what would you say to that? So the problem that we have is that there are no democracies in the Bible. Yeah. Right. So we it's really hard for us to take the examples that we have of engaging in politics and applying it to our situation because we live in a completely different context. I happen to think a democracy is a whole lot better than a monarchy. I mean, you know, put me up there, I guess, with the founding fathers. All right. So, you know, but no, no, I I mean, you know, the whole idea of, you know, you know, power not being vested in just one, you know, family and one ruler, but you know, democracy that you know everyone has value, everyone's voice, everyone's vote is supposed to count, right? That everyone has equal say because we all have equal worth. You know, there's some there's some Christian values that you could find a democracy helping to protect in that way, and so that then changes the way we have to respond both to our government and then as a government official. And so that, I mean, that's, I know Christian nationalists aren't going to accept that, but that's my response is I don't really care what the king was doing in the Old Testament because, hey, we don't have one. And so, you know, we're just in a completely different governmental situation. And we as Christians have to figure out how do we live best in in this situation. So your organization, Word and Way, you mentioned it earlier. We'll also have a link to that in the notes. You guys do a lot of religion and politics stuff. And I'm wondering what you can tell us about the current state of these culture wars sort of finding their way into the denominational battles. So people are probably familiar, you know, there there have been some some big votes, you know, in the Southern Baptist Convention, in the Methodist Church, depending on how on Twitter you are. I think I've probably talked about it briefly with guests here and there. What's kind of going on there? You know, speaking of this sort of culture war coming in and now being a part of church reality and, and denominational reality. Yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, we have these, you know, social cultural issues. Let's just take same-sex marriage because that's the issue that's splitting essentially every single Christian denomination. Right. Even the Mennonites have been splitting. And I, I'm I was a part of a Mennonite church for six years in Virginia. And I was like, if 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 the people who are devoted to like loving each other aren't able to stay together right now over this issue, I don't think any denomination has any hope. Yeah. And so, you know, what we have is this really hot cultural political issue that is dividing all of our denominations. But other, you know, topics, CRT and you know, some of the madness about, you know, about that is coming into Christian colleges and critical race theory. Yeah. Yeah. Critical race theory. And which is which is, you know, it's a made up controversy. If your kid is learning critical race theory in school, congratulations, they're in grad school. I mean, you know, I mean I I actually I actually had a class on yeah. critical theory. So yeah, critical it was a theory. broader class. And so we only had critical race theory for part of that class. But that was when I was in my PhD program at the University of Missouri, right? I mean, that's the that's critical race theory. Anything about race at all is being called CRT, but that right. CRT is a very specific sub idea. The organizational and communicational arms of these various organizations, or at least some faction within them or whatever, are becoming quite organized and in communication with each other, and they are at shared purposes, right? You know, there's some research that I think it helps explain why this is happening. Robert Putnam and David Campbell, they wrote American Grace, you know, maybe 10 years ago or more. They, they, they looked at research of how Americans are thinking about religion. And one of the things that they've talked about is that, you know, four decades ago, if your pastor said something that conflicted with your chosen political party, you were more likely to change your politics or even your party. And today, and I mean pre-COVID, and I think it's gotten worse. I think COVID probably accelerated this with all the politics embedded. But today, if your pastor says something that contradicts or conflicts with your chosen politics, yeah, you're more likely to change your pastor. Yeah. Or if there's enough of you, oh, you'll change your church. And if there's enough of you, you'll just change your whole pastor. Keep right. the church, right? So mm-hmm. we've got people who are going to red churches and blue churches. And we're, we're, we're separating based on politics. And then I tell pastors that it's actually worse than it sounds. Because it's not that you're the second biggest, most influential, 
impact on people's worldview after politics, after their chosen political party, is that they only tolerate you as long as you toe the party line. Party ID is the new religion. And so then, of course, all of this partisan politics is showing up in our churches and in our denominations, because that's what we actually care about. And that's basically how I got into studying psychology is around 2016 and all that. I read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and that introduced to me in very clear language the way that's a, a way of understanding the mechanism by which our inner lawyer, as he calls it, tells ourselves why we did what we did. And maybe that had fundamentally changed over the years from when I was growing up, where it felt anyway like people's faith had exerted pressure on their politics. But it was clear by 2016 that religion was thoroughly downstream of politics and sociopolitical identity. And it seems since then in the, in the intervening six years that sociopolitical identity has only grown. This is anecdotally. I mean, I'm not in, I'm not steeped in the research as much, but on the left as well, it's got less sort of religious ties on the left because it's a more secular, you know, voter base or whatever. But I would say even sort of sociopolitically in terms of people's social media presence and the way they present out in the real world, that that sociopolitical identity has continued to grow as kind of the main thing. And and it's the thing you need to know about another person that you don't know. You know, it used to be like, oh, are you a believer? And now it's like, depending on where you're at, are you are you into Trump? Or like, do you use the right words about these justice issues or, or whatever. And like, like you don't listen to Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson, do you, you know, it's like, these are the ways you can tell if someone's in the tribe and it's frankly exhausting. Yeah. One of the, one of the ways of, you know, kind of seeing what are the key you know markers in our society, what really drives people is those kind of questions of like, who would you not ever marry? Right. And yeah. so it used to be yes. that like, like I wouldn't marry someone of a different religion. And now it's the, I wouldn't marry somebody who's voted for the other presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's the marker. Yeah. Like some part of that is group bias and is false. And actually, if you were married to someone of the other political party, you might figure out a way to do it. Also, though, that political party distinction comes with 30 other facts now about a person, at least on a bell curve distribution, a likely set So are you going to buy a Tesla or are you going to buy a $70,000 Ford 350, F350, F250? I don't even know what the numbers are. See, I'm I'm not going to be able to help you out on that one either. Sociopolitical, liberal, (laughs) pansy-ass boy. You know, like you're going to do that. Are you going to be wearing a pride shirt or camo? Like it's just a whole list of things. And that might feel kind of alien. Like, yeah, I could not be with someone like that. And there is some reality in that. That's right. But you're right. It's not petty. What, what it, what's important, though, is it shows us what is actually the, the most important, the foundational set of who people now identify as. It is yeah. that it's no longer religion for much of our society. It is instead political party. Yeah. So how does a thoughtful person interpret all this religious language, this rhetoric from our politicians? Like, is the most responsible thing pure skepticism? You know, be entirely skeptical until you have three other pieces of evidence. Is it that bad? Have you come up with other ways of sort of responsibly interpreting this language? So I might just be a natural cynic, but yes, my first response is if a politician is running for office, to be skeptical of anything that they're saying. And that includes about religion, you know, that, that, that just because they're showing up at your church or they're showing up at a speech and talking about God doesn't mean they actually believe it. It means they think you're more likely to vote for them if they say this. So I think, I think that healthy skepticism when we think about the religious rhetoric of political candidates is really important. Another step though, that I think is important is to pay attention to what they're actually saying. Because, you know, a lot of times they'll throw in religious language. You might throw in some biblical scriptures, 
but they'll change the meaning of the text. The most recent example is Ron DeSantis has been doing this in a number of speeches. And at both those events, he did something he's done in the past where he he invokes the armor of God. He's encouraging conservatives to put on the armor of God. Let's go fight. But then... The text says <laughs> that is not what the armor of God is. Right. Yeah. That, but even then, even right. though he's already problematic, but then when he goes to quote the text, instead of saying to put on the armor of God to fight so that you can stand against the devil's schemes, yeah. Santis always says the left's schemes, which is, you know, one, a theological perversion of the text because he's now defining the Republican Party as the church, right? Yeah. That, you know, liberals yeah. are inherently on the devil's side and yeah. Republicans are the church. This is a passage that was designed to encourage the church, right? And now it's right. a passage about the Republican party. And so when someone does something like that, when they take, they quote scripture, but then they, they change it. I mean, our red flag should be going off like crazy instead of applauding. We too often, you know, clap, clap, applaud, applaud. And, and again, they do this on both sides. They'll, they'll, they'll start to quote a scripture but then, then they'll change it. I mean, one of the one of the famous examples is George W. Bush in one of his State of the Union speeches talked about the power, wonder-working power of the American people. <laughs> Instead of the power, wonder-working power, you know, the blood of Jesus, right? Like, so he, he right. clearly wanted to take the language from the church, and then he used it. Uh, David Quo, he wrote a book, Tempting Faith. This has been, you know, tw- you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago now. But he was in the White House for Bush helping write the speeches and putting in a lot of these faith references. And he reflected on that later of like, I should have known this was wrong. He, he said we were, I thought we were like, yay, this is great. We're putting in religious examples, but instead we were just bastardizing, you know, the text and, and the faith. And so, you know, and that's that self-reflection that we need earlier instead of after the fact. Obama's done this as well. When he was president, he had a speech. Yeah, he was using the metaphor from the Sermon on the Mount about the, you know, building your house on the sand versus the rock. But then he defined the rock and it was like the American economy or something like that. Right. It's like, yeah. like, wait a minute, that's not that's not quite where the text went. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, one start off skeptical, but then when they clearly change the meaning of the text to match their own political party or their own political policies, like Christians need to be be saying, no, like this is not right. Like our yeah. text is not there for you to abuse for your own political purposes. And really, I think Trump has sort of shown us a bit of the mechanism for how politicians land on these things because he he sort of showed it in real time with all his rallies he he'll try out 20 phrases and the five that get the most applause he'll keep repeating them and so i'm thinking why is desantis doing this <laughs> why are any of these people doing this because we respond like nope. they are constantly tracking audience engagement, donor engagement, and they just repeat the stuff that fucking works. And so ultimately it is on us. Like I do think that the leaders bear responsibility, but they only continue to use the slogans that the voters reward them for using. And so ultimately much of that responsibility is on our shoulders as the people. Gosh, this is so damn depressing, Brian. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, when a politician like quotes scripture, we're like, "Yay, he believes in Jesus!" Like, like, no, like, like, take it down. I'm yeah. almost like a, a Sally Field at the Oscars, right? Like, you like me, you really like me. You know, we just get so excited. Like, quote scripture, yeah. like, we just need to have a little bit more. So, you know, why is the serpents innocent as doves? Like, we need a little bit more of the wisdom of what politicians are doing here. Yeah, is there an alternative to this anytime soon in your mind, or is this what politicians will continue to do? Well, they will continue to do it as long as they win, right? And so it really is, the impetus really is on us. It's easy to blame politicians. And, you know, I think they do deserve blame if they're cynically, you know, Mm -hmm. taking sacred texts and using them for their own political purposes. Yeah. At the same time, right, you know, they want to win elections. I get it. So, you know, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't profane our faith. They wouldn't politicize our our faith if we didn't let them, if we punished them for it. And Mm -hmm. so it really, it's got to be voters and Punishing politicians and saying, we're not going to stand for this when you misuse religion for your own personal power. The helpful thing about politics is that it gives us a pretty good numerical estimate for like when people use the term Christian in America, what do they mean by it? Like what do 48% of Americans mean by it or whatever? Like, okay, 
we have at least a placeholder for the kind of thing you mean by it. Cause this, these are the candidates that you're vocally supporting or at least voting for like how much in your mind. Now I'm asking you less as an academic and maybe more as a pastor, how much of it needs to crumble? Like how much like true death and rebirth is needed? Or do you see glimmers of sort of changing from within? Do you see, you know, like, what do you, how do you think about the future? So I would say 2020 was much more depressing for me than 2016. When you look at the numbers for the church, I mean, obviously the election results, electoral college changed, you know, Mm -hmm. but when you look at the impact, and I say that because the white evangelical number and the white Catholic number voting for Trump was, was pretty much the same, both elections. And to me, that's the problem. Like, you know, in 2016, Donald Trump was, you know, he was he was a bit of a sideshow. He was funny. He was a he was a celebrity. He'd been a TV star. And Hillary Clinton was like, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton was the least popular presidential nominee in modern politics, except for Donald Trump. In the same cycle, we nominated the two least popular candidates we had ever nominated. Right. So like there was this perfect storm that could allow Trump to win. And Trump was actually viewed in polling. Voters thought he was the more moderate of the two candidates. And that was mainly just because we all knew where Hillary stood from decades in politics. And Trump was a little bit of a wild card. He hadn't Mm -hmm. actually had to vote for anything. Four years later, there are no excuses. Like we know, if you didn't know in 2016, we know who Donald Trump is in 2020. We know that he is a train wreck. We know that he is not fit for the job. We know that he is racist. We know he is incompetent. We know that he is breaking the law, like, you know, to stay in power. We'd already gone through the first impeachment by that point. We know all these things about Donald Trump. And White Christians still voted for him in essentially the same percentage. And to me, that is the biggest, most damning verdict on the white church today, you know, even more than the 2016 or anything else that we could bring into. And even then after January 6th, like they still support him in there's still his highest polling numbers come from white evangelicals. Like he can do no wrong. And at that point, then I see little hope that there's, you know, internal redemption, salvation change coming to 80% of white evangelical churches because you can't repent if you can't see. And they refuse to see. David French has been writing recently about how sort of the the case for Trump is getting more radical. That basically Trump has moved the goalposts because of his personality. So you got to be all in on all of it, which means you have to think that the election was stolen. You can't just prefer Trump to Biden anymore. That's not enough. That's kind of the sense I'm getting from the writing. I don't know that that's true, but like, and of course people can not buy into all that and still might choose to pull the lever for him. But in terms of the type of things that are being rewarded in the media ecosystem of the right, it is like an increasingly conspiratorial, increasingly sort of cult of personality stuff, even more so than 2016 and 2020. And so that kind of makes me feel like, yeah, that that fever has to break. I don't know how you stay in Trump world as a moderate. Like he doesn't really seem to want to let you do that, which I think harms his chances in a general election, which is good. Mm-hmm. But the amount of damage that the church may end up sustaining as a result of that relationship between him and his voters, when you get your mind around it, it's it's absolutely stunning. I'm pretty discouraged generally by the established church and by the white church. It seems to not be following Jesus, to to still embrace an authoritarian figure who promotes violence and is racist. And, and I, you know, we've mentioned a little bit with race, and I, I just think that it really comes down to that, that, you know, there are values that are that are trumping Christian values. And, you know, it is primarily, you know, racism and patriarchy and all these other things like that is more important. And we're willing to sacrifice everything else, including all of the things we use. I mean, my Sunday school teachers growing up in a Southern white Southern Baptist church, they taught me character matters. And now when I say it, I'm the liberal. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, you're giving up everything you've ever said you believed for this man. Cards on the table. I'm less convinced that that stuff can be boiled down to race and like sort of overt bigotry. I don't know exactly how to think of it. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of like persecution complex, which obviously that stuff overlaps with race and changing right. demographics and all that stuff. Basically, I'm convinced by the sort of the survey and statistical data, but I'm not convinced by all the arguments that want to sort of boil everything down to racial issues or boil everything down to white supremacy of one sort or another. I think it's all implicated and it's all like a big soup, you know, and it's certainly a major ingredient. I can't help but feel like that train has to fall off a cliff. Some people will have to die. And hopefully there is a Republican party or some sort of conservative consensus that can act as a counterweight to liberals, because I think just generally speaking, I've come to believe that you do need people with both sort of constitutions uh, to misuse scripture, iron sharpening iron, you know, like to just to make sure that the best ideas have to compete and then you get the better ones. Like Romney came up with Obamacare, a, you know, because a bunch of states were trying stuff and that seemed like the most promising one, you know, so we do need Functioning parties, and that's, of course, not to downplay the, the potential lasting damage that Trump and his ilk could do to our republic and to the rule of law, which is, you know, all very scary and demoralizing. Yeah, if we survive the next, you know, six years, maybe we're probably in good shape, so... I tend to I tend to agree. <laughs> then, then we'll start ha then we'll start dealing more seriously with global warming. I I don't mean that we will necessarily constructively deal with it. I mean that yeah. we will start feeling its effects more. Wow, what a depressing way to end an episode, Brian. <laughs> well, if you oh. brought me up for hope, you invited the wrong person. Sorry, I did. I did. Well, you know. It's still good to have some of that wisdom of serpents along with our dove-like innocence. Thank you so much for your time. Other than the link to the book and the site, anything else you want us to include? That's good. Yeah, appreciate that. Cool. All right. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, thank you. Enjoyed it. <laughs>